0: Amen. You can be seated. And if you have a Bible, you can open up with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I want to actually read the first two verses and then jump down and read the second half of verse five in, uh, of chapter 5 into chapter 6. The first two verses of Ephesians chapter 5 say, Therefore, Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now we jump over to verse 18, and we'll read from verse 18 down through verse 4 of chapter 6. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Holy Spirit, or with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He Himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present Himself to the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, But that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Amen. That is God's word to us. So we are looking this evening at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. We've made it so far through chapter 5. So in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 6, we're considering specifically and especially the relationships of children to their parents and of parents to their children. Just a little bit ago, uh, Sean mentioned to me, not the Apostle Paul, but our brother Sean, mentioned to me that uh, something like 75,000 books have been published on parenting. Sean, was that just this year or is that the last 20 20 years? 75,000 books published on parenting. Now, what does that tell you? about the general mindset of people when it comes to parenting. 75,000 books. I mean, what do you say in 75,000 times 150 pages or whatever? That is a lot of writing on parenting. What does it tell you that people have been willing to pay that much money for that many books on parenting? Well, I think at a very foundational level, it tells us that people recognize that something is not quite right that something's missing, that the relationship between parents and children isn't quite what it should be in the context of the family. And they're craving, they are longing for something that will help them fix what has gone wrong. I think that's why people are willing to buy 75,000 books on parenting. But if we're honest, then I think we would also admit that Christian parents can often feel very similarly to that, we can at times wonder, why do I feel so discouraged in my parenting? And why do my methods, the, the, my approach to parenting, why does it not seem to be producing the kind of results that it should in the lives of my children? Or why are my children the way that they are when I feel like I've been faithful to them, and yet things keep going wrong? Or why do I keep messing up so much as a parent? Why can't I do a better job? How can I be fixed for the sake of my children? As Christians, in our parenting endeavor, we can often feel like something is not quite right, like there's something missing, and we long for help. We long for resources. We long for someone to say, this is what it looks like to be a faithful parent." And it may seem simplistic, and it may seem cliché, but in response to those sorts of questions, and even in response at times to the agony of our hearts in our parenting relationships, the one place we can go is to the Word of God. There really is nowhere else to go when we're looking for answers with regard to how we should parent and how our children should interact with their parents. The word of God is the only ultimate authority that can tell us, Christian, this is what it looks like for you to be a parent. Or, on the other hand, child, this is what it looks like for you to obey your parents. And so we go to God's word. It's never easy to obey it, but it's generally fairly simple and straightforward in its instruction. And what Paul tells us in verses 1 to 4 of Ephesians chapter 6 is fairly simple, it's pretty straightforward. But it's not easy. In fact, it's impossible. And it leads us back to the theme of Ephesians that we've been in, which is, we considered it when we considered marriage, we're considering against night, the need to be filled with the Spirit. Paul is saying this is the outworking of a Spirit filled life. Parents, you cannot love your children and raise them according to God's word apart from the help of the Holy Spirit. And children, From the youngest to the oldest, even in this room, children, you can't love your parents. You can't obey them without God's help by His Spirit. And so we go to God's Word then this evening for a few moments as we consider what is it for parents to be in relationship with their children, and what is it for children to be in relationship with their parents? What does that look like in a God-honoring family setting? Well, first we begin with children. Simply put, children are to be obedient. That's what God says. He says, children are to be obedient. If you look at verses 1 to 3, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. If Paul were here this evening, and if, if this, imagine that this letter were not in written form, but this were an actual address from the Apostle Paul to the church, it would look very much like this setting with the Apostle Paul in my place and the church of Ephesus in your place. And as Paul gets, you know, he's been, he's been teaching now for five chapters. He's been speaking to the church, looking at people in their eyes, addressing them. At this point in the letter, imagine Paul would have now directed his eyes and his attention directly to the children. And I think that's a helpful picture. You picture the Apostle Paul. He would have looked right at the young people in the church, and it would have said, now, I'm talking to you children. This instruction is for you. And and I think that the fact that Paul here is directing children, it helps us understand a couple of important things about the dynamics of children in the church. First, I think it's a good reminder that we should hope for and expect there to be believing children in the church. When, when Paul is addressing children here, he is assuming that there are Christian children who are listening to him. And the reason I say that is because all throughout this letter, the people Paul has been addressing are Christians. The very first verse makes clear, he's speaking to saints, those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Back in Ephesians chapter one verse one, he says, in his greeting, "To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Jesus Christ. Who's Paul writing to? To saints, to believers." And then here he says, obey your parents in the Lord. All throughout this letter, when Paul has used this phrase, in the Lord or in Christ, he's been referring to Christians in union with Jesus. And so he's telling children then, he's continuing to address Christians, and he's telling them, children, as those who believe in Jesus, as those who are united to Jesus, obey your parents. We should not shy away from the idea that a young child can genuinely express faith and repentance toward the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus welcomes children to himself. He actually rebukes his disciples for keeping children away from him. And and so we should hope for and we should expect that in the life of our church, in our families, we should hope for and expect that God would save children at a very young age. There's nothing better that he could do. Than to, to save them at an early age that they might live all of their life for Him. If you're a child here, then, if you're six years old, four years old, five years old, 10 years old, 13 years old, if you're a child here tonight, then it's easy sometimes to think being a Christian is for people who are older. I'll be a Christian when I'm my mom's age, I'll be a Christian when, my, when I'm my dad's age, or when I become an adult. But this is reminding you, if you're four years old here tonight, if you're seven, if you are ten years old, now is the time for you to believe in Jesus. Not to wait until you're older, but to put your hope in Jesus right now and to begin to live for him from this moment forward for the rest of your life. Talk to your mom and dad about that. Ask them, how can I be a Christian? And then secondly, we learn not only that children are Christians, at least some among those who are reading this letter but that children were present with their parents in corporate worship again it would have been very much a setting like this as paul's letter was read to the church you know the church has received a letter from the apostle paul they're excited when the church gathers together the church is publicly read the letter is publicly read to the church as the church was gathered probably on a sunday the lord's day and paul is assuming because he's addressing children directly he's assuming that as this letter was read publicly to the church Children would be there to be able to hear it. That's a good reminder to us that God wants our children to be actively participating in the corporate worship of the church. It's important. Sometimes it can be really hard. I know (laughs) from experience that it can be hard to have children with you on a Sunday morning in, in church. But it's worth it. It's hard not just for parents. It's hard for the other people in the church. I mean, think about the water bottles that drop on a Sunday morning or the cries that someone carries out their kid through the door, or the fussing, the squirming, the paper crinkling, the toys, all all of that. Sometimes it's hard, but it's worth it. That's how we love our children. We need the corporate worship of the church as believers. It is the primary means that God uses both to bring us to a saving knowledge of Christ and to grow us in our our faith and in our uh, maturity as believers. Our children need that too. That's not just for grown-ups, that's for Everybody. And so we should love our children by encouraging them to be active participants in the life of the church through corporate worship. Of course, there are different stages, ages, seasons, situations, all of that, to which it may be appropriate to have a child in the training room for a while or in the nursery, but the goal is to have children who are actively participating with us in corporate worship. So all of that by way of introduction, in a sense, Paul is addressing children, and that matters, that's important, there's something to learn from that. But then secondly, Paul gives the command to children that they should obey their children in the Lord, for this is right. Then he says, "Honor your father and mother," which he's obviously quoting the fifth commandment there. The command given to children is simply to obey their parents. It's very simple, it's very straightforward, and in, in Colossians Paul says, "Children, obey your parents in all things, in everything, obey your parents." All of us have been, at one point or other, or currently are, children, and we've all lived or currently live under the oversight of our parents, and therefore we all know that it's not always easy to obey our parents. There are times when we, as children, whether we're 5 or 15, think that we know better than our parents. We think, we know what we want, our parents don't. We know what is right, our parents don't. And the point here that Paul is making is not, children, if you're right, you should make sure that you convince your parents you're right. The point that Paul is making here is, children, the question is not whether or not you're right. The question is, will you obey your mom and dad? That's what's pleasing to the Lord. I remember this time of year uh, growing up, I loved it because it started to get warm, stayed light longer. But for that very reason, I also had a very difficult time with this part of the year. Every time the time changed in the spring and it went from getting dark at 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. and then 8.30 p.m. and then eventually close to 9 p.m. Because in my home, there was always the rule that bedtime process started at 8 p.m. Whether it was December or June, you started getting ready for bed at 8 p.m., And it was like torture to start the bedtime process, brushing my teeth and getting my pajamas on, getting ready for bed, while all along I was listening to all of my neighborhood friends playing outside, just outside my front door. And I tried as hard as I could to convince my mom and dad that that rule was a dumb rule, that I should be allowed to stay awake, that nobody goes to bed before it's dark, That it's unfair because all of my parents, all of my friends' parents, let them play until it's nine o'clock. What if I was right? What if I could objectively prove, clearly prove to my mom and dad, look, I have made my case right here in written form. I'm presenting it to you. Here are all the reasons why an 8 p.m. bedtime is dumb, and all of the reasons why a 9 p.m. bedtime makes perfect sense and is for my good. Here it is. What if I was right? I had all the reason, but my mom insisted, no. My dad insisted, no. You will go to bed at 8 p.m. What's my responsibility as a child in that situation? My responsibility as a child is to say, okay, Mom. Okay, Dad. The point is not, you are right or you are wrong. The point is, what is pleasing to God? And what is pleasing to God, if you're a child... If you're still in your home, if you're dependent on your parents, if you're under their oversight, what is pleasing to your heavenly Father is that you willingly submit and obey to your earthly father and your earthly mother. And if that seems unnecessarily difficult, then consider Jesus and think about this for a second. At the age of Jesus, at the age of 12, Jesus was astounding the Jewish leaders with his understanding of the law. He was amazing them. They couldn't believe how much this child of 12 12 years old understood about God and about His Word. They were amazed. And so it's very safe to assume, I think necessary to assume, given the perfection of Jesus at every stage in His life, that Jesus, at a very young age, was far wiser than Mary or Joseph. And it makes me think there were probably a lot of times where Jesus knew that Mary was wrong and Joseph was wrong and that he actually knew a better solution or a better way to go about things at the age of 10, 11, 12, 13. But we read in Luke 2, verse 51, that from the age of 12 on, Jesus went back to Nazareth with his parents and it says he continued in subjection to them. This perfectly wise 12-year-old who knew far more than his parents about the character of God, continued in willing subjection to his parents. He never argued with them. He never talked back to them. He never refused to listen to them. He never disobeyed them, but he quietly obeyed. He quietly submitted himself to their oversight and their leadership, even though he knew at times that they were mistaken. That's a hard command to obey. It helps to look at the example of Jesus. It also helps to consider the motivation that Paul gives. If you look at verses, the second half of verse 2, and then verse 3, Paul says, after saying, honor your father and mother, he says, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Paul's talking about an Old Testament promise here in connection to the fifth commandment, referring explicitly to the the land of Israel, the nation of Israel, and their inhabitation of the promised land. And the promise was, if Israel obeyed, then they would remain in the land. If they disobeyed, God would remove them from the land. And Paul is taking that Old Testament promise that's directly connected to the fifth commandment of honoring your father and mother, and he's drawing a general principle here to say, basically... This same idea of obey your father and mother and it will go well with you, though it doesn't apply specifically to the land any longer, it does apply in a general sense to every believer. If you follow God's commandments, things will generally go better for you. You will avoid the foolish consequences or the consequences of your foolish mistakes if you just live according to God's commandments. And that's certainly true of children who are called to obey their parents Children think they know what is wise and they think they know what is best, but God knows better. And children who refuse to submit to their parents are actually showing that their heart is in rebellion to God. A heart that is submitted to God, that loves God, is also a heart that's willing to submit to your parents. God created the world, and he knows how we should live in it. We've been in this building now for four months or so. It's been a great blessing to us. I think our church has enjoyed it very much and benefited from it. On the Saturday before we moved in, a group of guys met with a guy named Trevor. Trevor is the contractor for this building, or he was the contractor for this building. And what that means is that Trevor, from the very beginning of the construction of this church building, was here. He saw the initial breaking of the ground. He saw the laying of the concrete slabs, he saw the walls go up, he saw the wiring go in, saw the plumbing, uh, all of the the internet cables, the structures, the materials, everything about this building, Trevor either did with his own hands or witnessed with his own eyes. He's the contractor. He knows this building inside and out better than anyone else in this room or anyone else actually in the world because he, he built it. And so as we were preparing to move into the building and wondering, how can we take care of a building like this? Like, how do, we, how do we steward this well? Well, who else would we ask other than the one who built it? He knows how to take care of it. He made it. Well, in the same way, God made this world, and he made you. He fashioned you. He shaped you. He created everything around you. He knows you. He knows what you need. He knows what will make your life f- uh, full and joyful. He knows what will make your life miserable and terrible. And God only commands what is good for you. And so the question is, as we try to figure out, what does it look like to live in this world with a, uh, in, in pursuit of fullness and satisfaction and joy? What does it look like to live a full life in this world? Who else would we go to other than the one who built it? And that's Paul's point here is, children, obey your father and your mother. Even if that sounds hard, do it, because God knows what is best for you. And you can trust him and his design for you. And so, yes, it's a hard command, but Paul says there's a promise to it. Children, if you obey your father and your mother, it will go well with you. You're living according to God's design for you. And that goes for all of God's commandments. When we trust God and obey his commandments, we are saying, I trust that God's way is best, and I'm going to follow his way. So Paul addresses the children then first, obey your parents and the Lord, just as an important clarification, Paul is not saying, children, that you become a Christian by obeying your parents. It's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying you need to try really hard to obey your parents because it's by obeying your parents that you will become a Christian. You become a Christian not because you try really hard to obey, you become a Christian because you trust in Jesus. He obeyed perfectly for you. And so even if you struggle at times to obey your father and your mother, you are saved, you become a Christian, not by trying harder to be saved, but by looking to Jesus, trusting in him. He obeyed perfectly for you. So that's Paul's instruction to children. Now he addresses fathers in, verses, in verse 4. Nurturing parents is the nature of verse 4. He tells parents that they should be nurturing toward their children. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of Of the Lord. So I've said it's nurturing your children. Parents should nurture. The word nurture doesn't show up in verse 4, at least not in the NASB translation, but it does in the King James Version. So if you have a King James Version, then you'll notice in verse 4 that it does say uh, to bring your children up in the admonition and the nurture of the Lord. And I think this idea of nurture is really important. It helps us capture the idea of what Paul's communicating about the way that parents should raise their children. There's a difference between merely bringing up your children and nurturing them. In fact, this word, uh, bringing up, in verse 4, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, this phrase, bring them up, is the same word Paul used back in chapter 5. So if you look at chapter 5, down in verse 29... It's the same word he uses in verse 29 for nourish. To bring up children is to nourish children. Look at verse 29 in chapter 5. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Nourish and cherish. Husbands nourish and cherish their wives because they're their own body. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church because it's his own body. And now we're being told fathers, nourish cherish, nurture your children in the same way that Christ does the church, in the same way that husbands do their wives. Fathers, nurture, cherish, nourish your children. John Calvin translates this phrase, uh, bring them up, as fathers are to let the children be fondly cherished. In other words, fathers fondly cherish your children. They are a gift from the Lord. Rejoice in them and cherish them. Paul often refers to God as our Father in the book of Ephesians, and over and over again, as he mentions Father in the book of Ephesians, it's in direct connection to the Father's love for us. We see that over and over again. One of the chief characteristics that are in connection to God as our Father is God as the one who loves us, who has affection for us. And so no matter what our experience might be with earthly fathers, I recognize all of us come from different homes and different contexts. We've all had different experiences with our earthly fathers. Whatever our experience with earthly fathers might be, the biblical concept of father should immediately stir up in our minds thoughts of affectionate and fatherly love. No matter where we come from, no matter what our experience, when we hear father from the Bible, then it should stir up in our minds nurturing and affectionate love. And Paul addresses only fathers here. He says fathers do this. Do not provoke your children. He doesn't mention mothers, uh, and that's not because mothers are insignificant in the raising of their children. He's just said to children, Obey your parents in the Lord. Honor your father and mother. So obviously mothers have a very important role to play in the raising up and the nurture of their children. But fathers are specifically addressed here because they have the primary leadership role in setting the tone and the direction for the home. But what Paul is saying here with regard to fathers, is no less applicable to mothers because the work of parenting, obviously, is a collaborative effort. The father sets the tone, the mother follows the husband's lead, but they work together in the raising up of their children. And so mothers here are just as much uh, in, uh, in, in mind, or, or this, what Paul says here is just as applicable to mothers as it is to fathers, even though he's specifically addressing fathers. So, what are the specific instructions given to fathers and we could add mothers? What are are the ways that fathers and mothers nurture their children? Well, first he says what we don't do. So, if you look at verse 4, first part, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Do not provoke your children to anger. The idea here is that we're not to make things unnecessarily difficult for our children. There are rules that need to be followed, expectations that we must have for our children. There are commands that God has placed on our children that we should encourage them and exhort them to obey. But it's very easy for us as parents to begin to unnecessarily, uh, to, to make things unnecessarily difficult for our children or to enforce rules and commands in a way that provokes them to anger. Some of the ways we do that as parents We can do it by being overly critical and harsh toward our children. We provoke them to anger when we're overly critical and harsh toward them. We can do it by comparing them to other children or even playing favorites among our own children. When our children get the sense that they're being compared to others or when they get the sense that we have greater affection for some other child in the family, then that is breeding ground for bitterness and resentment toward us from our children. We can do it by frequently guilting or shaming them into obedience. We can do it by not keeping our promises to them, not being faithful to our word that we make to our children. We can provoke our children to anger by refusing to listen to them and to understand them. When they feel like dad just won't listen, he won't understand, he doesn't care. Mom, she doesn't care. Those types of things stir the heart toward anger in the lives of our children. I think the most foundational way Or maybe the capstone of it all would be that we provoke our children to anger when we make them feel like they can never really please us. When we make them feel like we're never really happy or satisfied with them. When our children feel like we're expecting them to meet some standard of perfection and we're never content until they meet that standard of perfection, then it's very likely that they will lose heart, get discouraged and eventually feel embittered toward us, angry at us. Instead, we should often be expressing words of affirmation to our children. We should encourage them. We should recognize when their intentions are good, even if the result wasn't that good. And we should let them know when we're proud of them, when we see God helping them in a certain area. We should celebrate that with them. Let them know, I am happy to see this. We should be gracious. We should be patient when they disappoint us. So what we're not to do then is to provoke our children to anger. Then Paul says next what we are to do. He says we should bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Those two words discipline and instruction are very similar to one another. Uh, To discipline is literally to train. It's The idea of of shaping or training the mind and the heart to think a certain way or to desire certain things. When we train our children, we are shaping their mind and their heart. To instruct is literally to place in the mind. That's what it means to instruct, to place in the mind of our children. Our children are always having things placed into their minds. Always, all the time, whether it's social media, uh, friends, music, Other relationships, other people, other things they see, they are always having things placed into their minds. Our goal as parents is to place the truth in their minds. We're to instruct them in the truth. So how do we do that? How do we train our children? How do we instruct our children? How do we shape and mold their hearts and their minds in accordance with God's word? Well, I've just mentioned a few things here in my notes that I'll run through. Certainly not exhaustive by any means, but just a couple really simple basic reminders of how we train the hearts and the minds of our children. First, we do it through prayer. That might seem overly obvious, but I wonder if we ask ourselves honestly, how often are you praying for your children, or how often are you praying for the children in this church? How would you pass? How would you do in that sort of test? Are you praying daily for your children? Ultimately, from the outset, shaping the mind and the heart of our children is a futile effort in our own strength. It's impossible. We can't do it. We can't change the hearts of our children. We can't place in their hearts faith in Jesus. We can't illumine their minds the way the Holy Spirit can to give them understanding. We can't do those things. And so we're powerless, and it forces us to pray, to cry out to our God on behalf of our children. Not only should we pray For them, but we should pray with them. We should try to understand what our children are experiencing, what they're going through, their thoughts, their feelings, their hopes, their fears. What is it that's on the heart and mind of my child? And then we should sit down with them and we should pray with them about those things. We should model for them what it looks like to take those sorts of things to God in prayer. Second, we train and instruct our children by communicating God's word. Again, perhaps overly simplistic and straightforward. But how do we do in this? Are we being faithful to communicate God's word to our children? We could go to a number of passages that speak of the importance of having God's word fill our homes. We don't have time to do that this evening. Deuteronomy 6 is a great place to go. But the idea is that at all times throughout the day, Scripture should fill our home. Not that we can't talk about other things at all, but we're always looking for opportunities to express to our children the greatness and the goodness of God, as he's revealed it to us in his word. That should look like formal times of sitting down with our families and with our children and opening up the scriptures and reading God's word to them, but it should especially look like informal times, always being ready to take advantage of an opportunity to talk to our children about God in the car, on walks. As we sit at the dinner table, every opportunity that we have to point our children to the truth of God, his character, his goodness, his greatness, his grace, we should be looking for those opportunities. Then thirdly, we teach and we train our children through correction and through discipline. And discipline here in the sense of punishment, consequences for their actions. The Bible warns us again and again of the damage that we do to our children if we fail to discipline them. It is unloving of us to not discipline our children, to not correct them. The perfect pattern for discipline, of course, is found in God himself. There's no better example of fatherly discipline than the example of God. Think about some of the ways that the scriptures speak of God's discipline toward his children. First, his discipline is always in love, always, every time. There's never an ounce of hatred or wrath in his discipline of his children. It's always in love. Second, it's never uncontrolled or thoughtless. God's discipline is always for our good, we read in Hebrews, which means it is intentional. It's thoughtful. He knows how to apply the proper measures in order to produce the result that he desires. He's never flipping out, losing control, and allowing his anger to just come crashing down on us as an act of discipline. But he's controlled, and he's intentional, and he's thoughtful in the way that he disciplines His discipline is never a delight to him. God never delights in the pain of his children. We read in Isaiah that in all of Israel's affliction, even though their affliction was the result of his discipline, in all of Israel's affliction, God was afflicted. And then we read in Lamentations that he does not afflict willingly or wholeheartedly. He doesn't delight in seeing his children suffer. His discipline is always in the context of grace. His wrath has been satisfied. He's not punishing us in order to satisfy his justice. Instead, his discipline is always gracious, and it's always intended for our good. And if we take all of those principles and we apply them to our lives as parents and how we discipline our children, then it sets a good, it sets a good pattern for us. Our discipline should always be carried out in love, never in anger. It should always be thoughtful and controlled, never flippant or reactionary. Our discipline of our children should always grieve us. It should grieve us to have to punish our children. It should never be a means of satisfying our rage. It should always be in the context of grace. We should be making clear to our children that our heart toward them is one of forgiveness. A desire for restoration, a desire for their good. Never rage and wrath. So we're to discipline and correct our children that's how we train and shape them and then fourthly we shape and train our children through time we can't expect to shape and mold the minds and the hearts of our children if we don't spend time with them richard phillips writes it is often and rightly so observed that quality time cannot substitute quantity time time is the currency with which i purchase the right to say my son my daughter give me your heart We must spend time with our children and make time for our children. And then fifthly, we shape and mold and train our children through our example. Paul, the apostle, speaks over and over again of the importance of imitation. 1 Corinthians 11, Philippians 3, 2 Timothy 3. Over and over again, he tells believers, follow my example. Look at my example. Don't just do what I tell you, but do what you see in me. Practice what you observe. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. The teaching and instruction that we give our children is always to be built on our example to them. Thankfully, teaching and instructing our children through our example doesn't mean perfection at all. Sometimes being a godly example to our children will look like confessing our sin to them. Some of the most uh, impactful and best lessons in godliness that our children might ever receive from us are the times when we bend down to them and we look them in the eyes and we say, son or daughter, I was wrong when I spoke to you that way. I was selfish. I was unloving. Please forgive me. We are to be an example, not just when we do everything right, but we are to be an example when we do things wrong by showing our children what it looks like to humbly confess and acknowledge failure. So those are some of the ways then, again, not exhaustive, but some of the ways that we train and instruct our children. We pray for them, we communicate God's word to them, we correct and discipline them, we spend time with them, and we're an example to them. Now a passage like this, if you've been able to follow along and pay attention and consider what Paul has said here, is intimidating for a parent. Maybe as you consider what Paul is saying about what it looks like to nurture and love your children, you have to wrestle with a sense of fear and guilt. I know that I had to deal with fear and guilt as I worked my way through this passage this week in my own life and in my own heart. I can look back at the times that I've failed my children and I can think I have to battle in my mind a sense of guilt. Because of my failures. I can think of the potential consequences either of past or future mistakes that I make as a father. And I can be tempted to feel a sense of fear about how it's all going to turn out. And I I ask myself things like, what if I can't measure up as a father? What if I can't be the kind of father that God is telling me to be? In fact, what if I've already messed up too many times up to this point in my parenting And I've been reminded as I've wrestled through those questions in my own heart that this is why our parenting has to be carried out in the context of the rest of the letter of Ephesians. Throughout this whole letter, Paul has been reminding us who we are in Christ. We are new people if we are in Christ. We are forgiven, we are redeemed, we are washed, we are loved, we have been made new. We're new creatures. And all of our sins, including our failures with regard to our children and our parenting, whatever they might be, if we are trusting in Christ, if we've repented and believed in him, then all of our failures as parents have been carried away from us as far as the east is from the west. As we settle down at night and look back on our day and we think about the different events of the day, the different interactions we've had with our children we should remember that our performance as a parent does not contribute and it doesn't take away one ounce from our identity in Christ. If we base our sense of success as Christians on how well we are parenting, then we are setting ourselves up for daily disappointment or, on the other hand, daily pride, which will eventually lead to disappointment. Instead, we're to base our success our sense of success, our identity, we're to base all of our confidence in the love that Christ has for us. We should use our frequent failings, the times that we mess up and make mistakes and fall short of the kind of father or the kind of mother that we should be, we should use those as opportunities to be reminded of how deep the grace of Christ is toward his children. He loves you, he has forgiven you, even though you have messed up at times as a mom or as a dad. Not only should we remember his gracious forgiveness toward us, but we should remember his sovereignty. We should remember that God is in perfect and complete control over the lives of our children. Not even our mistakes are sufficient to ruin God's plan for our children. He is gracious, he is compassionate, and we can entrust our children's souls and lives and eternity to the faithful care of our Heavenly Father. Even in the context of our shortcoming. So Paul is writing this portion of the letter to you, if you're a mom or a dad, to you if you're a child, to every Christian, so that we might more fully understand the grace of Christ and the way that that grace works itself out in relationships. He is writing not to to discourage you, not to make you feel like you are an utter failure when it comes to these things, But he's writing you to encourage you, to say, look, as someone who is new in Christ, no matter what your family background might be, no matter what your track record might be up to this point as a mom or a dad, as a child, no matter what may be in your past, here is what Christ wants for you. You are new in him, and this is the path that he has laid before you. This is what is now possible for you if you would trust in him. And rest on His grace and strive to obey Him. He will give you the needed grace to walk this way. Again, He's telling us, this is what it looks like to walk worthy of your calling. You're a Christian. This is what you are. Everything you need to be a faithful father, a faithful mother, a faithful child, everything required of you is given to you in Christ. Now walk in a manner worthy of that calling. As we trust in the Lord Jesus for grace even in the context of our shortcoming. As we daily strive to walk in obedience through reliance on him, we can trust God will keep molding us. He's not done working in our hearts, no matter who we are. He is going to keep refining us. He is going to keep growing us. We can't lose heart. We certainly can't give up. Instead, we must trust him and obey him with reliance on his spirit. Well, Let's pray, and we'll finish up for the evening. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious father to us. We thank you that you do not provoke us to anger with your unfair or overly harsh and critical approach to fathering. But you're kind and you're gracious, you're patient toward us. We thank you especially that you have washed us and forgiven us of all of our sins, whether it be sins of disobedience toward our parents or sins as parents toward our children we thank you that in Christ we are forgiven. And we pray for your help as your people to walk in a way that honors you as we strive to fulfill your commands to us in the context of our homes. We need your help for that. Uh, Father, we need your Holy Spirit for that. We need your grace. pray that you would give us all the grace we need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.